This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we see dragons and beasts and women riding on them. Who is this beast of land and sea? The same hermeneutic we've used throughout Revelation will help us know more. All right, we're ready. Let's dive into the 12th chapter of Revelation. This is where it gets weird. It de- well, yeah. For some people, it gets weird in different if, places. If you, this if you is don't think it's spots. weird yet, this yeah. is where it's going to get really weird. Yeah. All right. Well, here you go. Go ahead, Brent. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. All right, so we realize that John is consistently and constantly placing text into context. We want to think of the Hebrew scriptures. We want to ask the pressing question, who is this woman? Not thinking into the future, but thinking into the past. The answers to this question don't tend to be quite as futuristic and far-fetched for most conversations. Most Christian interpretation will sit solidly on this being a direct reference to Jesus. I don't believe that's incorrect, but let's make sure we're keeping the larger picture in mind and exhausting the possibilities. As we've seen, this is going to help us catch more of the depth of what John's trying to communicate. Maybe not as weird, then. Maybe not as weird. Maybe there's something more to it. Yeah. The woman could be a reference to Mary and Jesus, as we just pointed out. There appears to be an element of this meant to employ a more literal picture of the apocalyptic imagery. She gives birth to a child who is snatched up to heaven and to his throne. Then she escapes into the wilderness. At this point, the image seems to break down if we continue to hold Mary as a more literal character of this story. It doesn't seem to make sense at this point. So it seems to be pretty straightforward until the end of the metaphor. And you're like, wait a minute, how does how does that work for Mary? That- doesn't seem to make any sense. The woman could be the nation of Israel. As we've noted before, Israel is very often referred to as a bride. The people of God would be the ones who give birth to Messiah. We might think of that famous passage about a branch coming from Jesse's stump. This would make more sense in that she wears a crown of 12 stars and gives birth to a child who will shepherd the goyim. Very interesting. All right. I like that one, obviously. Obviously. There are some other options, though. The woman could, in a very similar fashion, be the early church, both Jew and Gentile. This would also make sense with the reference of 12 stars. And both this and the previous option would make much more sense in regards to fleeing into the wilderness. This particular option is not as clean of a connection when it comes to giving birth to a child. There are other options as well. Even the idea that the woman is Eve from Genesis. Because we were told in Genesis that she would have a child, and that child would crush the head of the, what, Brent? The serpent. The serpent, and the serpent, etymologically, is very much connected to the idea of a... Of a dragon. Of a dragon. All right, this makes good sense. Uh, This prophecy would be in the mind of all his Jewish readers, uh, mentioned already in all of our studies here. So, So what about the dragon? Who's the dragon? If we stay true to a hermeneutic, this is an easy question. Our hermeneutic, the only one I believe makes sense, by the way, says that these are not vague references to the unknown future, but instead, in keeping with the apocalyptic genre, well-known images that help communicate the point into the current 
context. The dragon represents the empire of Rome. Or, to go back to our earlier language, the dragon represents just the idea of empire. Finally, the woman is on the run and in hiding for a season. This is the same reference to 1260 that we saw before, an apocalyptic way of saying a significant amount of time, but it won't last forever. Give us some more text here, Brent. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. All right, some hear this and they say, Aha, Marty, the dragon is Satan. Why are you picking on Rome? But as we've seen in our study of Pergamum, John has no problem connecting and equating the devil and the empire of Rome. And Jewish authors did not have a problem making that. That's done routinely in Jewish literature of the first century. John understands that Rome, in general, is the personification of evil and the main agent doing the work of what he would call Satan, Shatanah. This is not unique to Revelation, can be found in all kinds of apocalyptic writings in the period of Roman oppression. It should also be noted that these references continue to be full of links to the Hebrew prophets. Wouldn't it be nice if there were actually links, like hyperlinks? That'd make this so much easier. Yeah, well, <laughs> they did have it. Yeah. It's, it's just a hyperlink neuron in their brains. There you go. Perfect. Well, it's the reference to the dragon being thrown down to earth that would make any Jewish reader think of Isaiah and Ezekiel, who prophesied about the king of Tyre and Babylon, two other world powers of their day who relied on their pride and their arrogance. These would be fitting connections to make to Rome. And again, we have text to context. Brent, give us some more to work with. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So uh, we see some more text of context here in that the woman is given two wings of an eagle. Remember how I carried you on eagles' wings, a reference to their deliverance from Egypt in the text. You should go find where that is, everybody. Egypt was another world power like Rome. How about they were flown into the desert? God said through Jeremiah that he remembers how Israel followed me through the desert like a bride. When the dragon pours forth a river like a flood, what do we think of? What do you think of when I say flood, Brent? Uh, Noah. Okay. What, what about, uh, what about other water? That's absolutely, that's my first reference here on my notes. What about <laughs> another water story that uh, would be relevant here? In, in flood. Anybody else that escaped deliverance by 
passing through a whole bunch of water. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, Moses and, and the entire Exodus story. Nation yeah. of Israelites. Absolutely. So could it be these? Could it be both of those? As a dragon goes to make war against her offspring, one cannot help but remember the same passage in Genesis 3 and the declaration that we know how this story is going to end. The, the chapter here in Revelation ends right in the midst of a contest between the dragon and God's people. But the message from Pastor John is clear. We are in a great spiritual battle. We must stand our ground and continue to walk in righteousness. We've been here before and we know how this story ends. Persevere and overcome. So if we had any question that that dragon and its connection to the Roman Empire... We uh, were like, I don't know, it seems like a stretch. Well, we should definitely be able to clear that up in this chapter. And to that end, we need to do a little bit of contextual work. Uh, We mentioned before that we would return to Ephesus for further study. And here we are. The time has come. Ephesus is the place that I believe John penned the letter of Revelation. We've alluded before to the largest gymnasium in the Roman world that was being constructed by Emperor who, Brent? Domitian. Domitian. Not only was the size of this structure nearly unbelievable, but the speed at which it was raised is staggering. Now, we have some photos for you in this uh, uh, episode today. And so you're going to pull those up. You're going to have three pictures. They'll probably be showing up in your chapter artwork. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so this picture you're going to see first is a picture of that gymnasium in Ephesus. Largest gymnasium in the ancient Roman world. So large, it can't even fit in this picture. Absolutely. You're only actually looking at probably less than half of the gymnasium. I'm showing you the relevant part to our discussion today, which is kind of the um, the apse. Do you remember, if our listeners remember, Brent, uh, when we were looking at the, the synagogue in Sardis, and we said in the background, the, the synagogue was built into what, Brent? Uh, inside of the gymnasium. Inside the gymnasium. And in the background of that photo, we talked about the apse, which is kind of like the center, like the, the foyer, the main portion of the building like the center part of the structure, not center as in located in the middle, but it was the central thing that kind of draws your attention. Well, right here is the picture of the apse of Domitian's gymnasium. This actually goes all the way up to the front of the theater. Now, if anybody's ever been to Ephesus before or knows the layout of Ephesus, if you don't, first of all, you should come with us to Turkey and I will show you. Um, If you do, you know how big of a piece of ground this gymnasium is covering. It is huge. Brent, you were standing on top of this hill when we took the picture? It's incredible. It's massive. Ephesus is so large. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's It's hard to really wrap your mind around how much is going on in Ephesus. Absolutely. All right, so this is a huge building and it went up very, very, very quick. Of the 22 advents... Domitian directed for his imperial worship. Remember, an ad, what was an advent, Brent? An arrival. An arrival. He had 22 imperial advents. That's a lot. <laughs> 22. One of the largest was in Ephesus. I think, the, I think according to history, the next largest number after 22, I think, is like 9 or 11. I'd have to go back and check my notes, but it's not, it's not close. It's, it's less than half. Domitian thought himself to be fairly important. You better believe it. One of his largest advents was in Ephesus and centered around the grand opening of this monstrous gymnasium. The building project, which typically would have taken over a century to complete. This building is so big, I'm going to say that again. That typically a building of this size would have taken a century to complete. Was finished in just four years. One of the most famous finds at the site is the bust to a 30-foot statue of Domitian, which many assume once stood in the apse of the gymnasium. 
Historians don't spend any time making Domitian look good and offer, often referred to Domitian in history as the beast. If one would have looked toward the harbor of Ephesus from the city center, they would have seen the construction of Domitian's gymnasium. It was going up so fast that some referred to it as the beast who was rising out of the sea. Ooh. Mm. In fact, Pliny said that Domitian was the beast of the sea whose teeth drip with the blood of good Romans. Having made mistakes in the past, the people of Ephesus were not going to miss the opportunity to support the new emperor and make their own voluntary gesture of worship. To this end, so the building project was put on the beast of the the sea, the, the gymnasium was whose project, Brent? That would be the empire itself. Yeah, and namely, under who? Domitian. Domitian. Domitian had put this together for himself, for his own worship. But Ephesus didn't want to miss out, and so they raised funds and began, and began construction of what's called today the Flavian Temple to Domitian, which sits west of the upper Agora towards the other end of the city. So they were trying to complete the construction of this much smaller temple, and it was going up rather quickly as well. They were trying to get it done before Domitian arrived in order to honor the Caesar. This was with money that they raised. This was their project, the the gymnasium Domitian's project, the Flavian temple, their project. Built on a vaulted platform, supported by 24 pillars, each depicting one of the legal Roman gods, the image was clear. The Roman gods hold up Domitian, not the other way around. Domitian doesn't hold up the gods. The gods hold up Domitian. Now, you can see a couple of pictures here. This uh, first picture we'll look at is actually a, a photo from up on top of a mountain ridge, looking down on the top of that vaulted platform. And you can see this little rectangle built into there. That was the foundation of the kind of the main housing, the, the naos is what they called it, the main temple structure uh, that sat on top of that vaulted platform. Now, this next photo is one that Brent took from ground level, and it shows the pillars, or at least a couple of the pillars, or a few of the pillars, that would have held up the the platform itself. So these would have been on the bottom, holding up the vaulted platform. There was 24 of those pillars, and each one of those pillars bared an image of the 24 legal Roman gods. Now, you stood there, Brent. Pretty uh, Would have been pretty impressive if it was all still standing today? I think so. Not as impressive as Domitian's Gymnasium, but hey, a pretty good pretty good shout-out. Not bad for um, being funded by the city rather than the entire Roman Empire. That is right. So many, have, many historians have suggested that this is where the people of Revelation received what was often referred to culturally as the mark of the beast. We know from history that during Domitian's reign, citizens were required to swear their allegiance and worship to the divine emperor. After offering incense, possibly at that very Flavian temple, located between both agoras, by the way, would have been the perfect location, you were given a stamp or a mark that allowed you to engage in local commerce. Without that mark, you could not buy or sell in either of the Ephesian agoras. There's much more that we could unpack here, but we've already unpacked quite a bit. Do you think so, Brent? Uh, fair, fair amount. So let's turn to the text of Revelation 13 and see if some context here culturally has given us some insight. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. 
The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Right, we've seen this in ancient Jewish apocalyptic literature. Beasts with horns on their heads almost always used to denote kingdoms and their many rulers. Not only does the beast match a description that is full of images for the empire of Rome, but it even gives the description of one particular head that, quote, seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Well, one of the most famous aspects from history about Emperor Vespasian, an early Roman emperor, an early Caesar, was his fatal head wound that had been miraculously healed, according to Roman history. This reference is obvious and deliberate on John's part. There is no mistake. The beast is a representation of Rome. Go ahead and read us some more. Quick question. Yes. So did the gymnasium itself, like if you look at these 10 horns or seven heads, like do any of those numbers? I mean, we the gymnasium is not uh, as well excavated as some of the rest of the city, but I was just wondering if any of that stuff lines up. I don't know if there's any relevance to the actual structure of the gymnasium itself. I think it's more of a callback to text, but who knows? And I, I don't know, and I don't know if we have any knowledge that would point towards whether or not there were, you know, I don't know, whether there'd be like 10 towers on the gymnasium that kind of were a part of the structure. Uh, who knows? I'm not sure if we have any idea of that, but uh, it's a good question. Wouldn't surprise me a bit if John was able to pull something out of the text and the context to get <laughs> those numbers. All. Not at all. Wouldn't surprise us at all. All right, moving on. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Again, the purpose for John writing this letter is stark and clear in context. He pulls no punches and cuts right to the heart of the matter. He knows what life is like under the rule of Emperor Domitian. He is not naive to the fact that people all throughout this great city are giving their lives to follow God, and he encourages them to stand firm and hold fast. He continues to say that perseverance is the answer for their struggles. Go ahead and keep, uh, give us some closing thoughts here from Revelation. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. 
It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So again, the context revelation in Ephesus helps us hear John's references with cultural clarity. John writes to them about the temptation to give in and worship the beast. You may remember John's letter to Ephesus in Revelation, where he spoke to them about how they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The believers there were apparently committed and resolute in their ability to resist the demands of imperial worship. John tells them that they will have to remain strong in their commitment. And about the number of the beast, we should probably deal with that because that's going to... I remember back in Genesis when I skipped the conversation about the Nephilim. Boy, did that one come back to haunt me. <laughs> Better not skip the number of the beast. Genesis 6. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh I like that. <laughs> So about that number, it should be noted that we've seen this number before. It's been used all throughout the Hebrew scriptures to denote evil and the adversary. One might remember the reference showing up in the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, as well as David and Goliath. On a very basic level, the number 666 is simply the most fitting number for the beast. But many historians have pointed out correctly, I believe, that early writers and theologians would play with numerical values of names. In the Hebrew world, this is called gematria. If you take the names of multiple Roman emperors and calculate the value of their names, you can often create the value of 666, and that can be done with a lot of them. This is not a striking accomplishment as it sounds. Everybody's going to write me an email and be like, it's Nero because his name means, well, everybody's name, almost every Caesar could be used to do that. Um, You can do it with many. Uh, You can even do it with the name Santa Claus, by the way. I just submit to you, Santa Claus. (laughs) Yes. The Antichrist. Oh, dear. But I digress. At any rate, it may have been a part of common conversation. Uh, We don't know how common that reference was amongst the first century, but John is playing off of it for his purposes here in the letter. In the end, we can invite ourselves to examine our lives and worship patterns. I think it's helpful to see what the early church believers were willing to do in order to stand against idolatry. The danger in a culture like ours is that the temptation is much more subtle because it's not accompanied by the threat of death or imprisonment. But I often wonder when I think about what my world demands, uh, what I sell out to, what do I sell out to? What marks of different beasts do I carry? May we stand on the shoulders of those early recipients of revelation and exude the patient endurance and faithfulness that John called them to. Amen and amen. More revelation to come, Brent. More to come. And in the meantime, if you have any questions, I would submit that you uh, do some exploration on your own. We've given you a lot of tools. Check out some of the references that John is talking about. Dig into uh, some of the stuff that we're not sure about. Uh, See if you can find anything. And if you do find something, let us know. So go to BaymontDeceptionship.com. You can get in touch there. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. 